Welcome to episode 65 of the UK One Chat podcast. I'm Joe Williams, and in this episode, I speak with Alex and Josh from our new strength and conditioning partners, Saw Today. Alex and Josh have vast experience in the strength and conditioning world, including being involved in six major championships, which includes multiple Olympic Games with Team GB. This is the first in a series of strength and conditioning podcasts we will be recording. Any feedback, please email us on info at uk1chat.co.uk. If you'd like to leave a review on the favourite uh, podcast platform, platform that you use, that'd be great too. Uh, enjoy this conversation with Alex and Josh and see you on the next episode. Welcome, Alex. Welcome, Josh. How are you both? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, likewise, Joe. Thank you for having me. You, you're never quite sure when there's three of you on one of these. Who, who answers first? <laughs> I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna attempt to pass the mic to Alex first, and then I'll I'll pick up after. There we go. We've we've got a we've got a plan. We've got a plan. <laughs> cool. Well, as I said in the introduction, uh, you're our new strength and conditioning partners on UK Run Chat. Welcome, welcome to your first podcast. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to discuss um, all things strength and conditioning, which will be good, good fun. Yeah, good, good. And you've you've already. Um, took a part in a couple of chat hours, haven't you, offering advice out to our runners. How did you find them? I found them great. I'm, I'm continually amazed at really how engaged the running community is online. Um, I think it's really worthwhile for us. It gives me a lot of value to give people answers to their questions and just, in, in honesty, just be able to talk all things shop, all things S&C with, uh, with interested people. Good. Good. I, I kind of kind of piggyback on the back end of it. Like, like... I love S&C, I suppose. It's probably the best way. Or I love talking about it, I should say. So you've given me an hour platform on Twitter to um, let me talk about my ramblings. It's, it's, it's probably the best hour I, I got all weekend, I suppose. So um, And it was my kid. I shouldn't say that. It was my kid's birthday. But it was the second best thing I did all weekend. Um, but, yeah, I just really, really enjoy, really enjoy being able to converse and have discussions around Thing, and I think one of the big things I'm sure we'll get into this is what I take for granted as normal and actually that isn't everyone else's reality and being able to kind of explore that is I think is really really useful to understand what everyone's doing cool very good how old is how old is your kid Beatrix turned five going oh. on 15 but yes. happy birthday Beatrix <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was my eldest last week as well he was 18 so January birthdays. Yeah. On top of Christmas, so great as parents, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Spends the time of the year for you both. Well, you kind of forget it that it's someone's birthday after Christmas, and then you suddenly, oh, I've got to do something. Yeah. <laughs> so let, let's start. Why don't you give us an introduction to, to you both and, and, and your experience, you know, and um, that, that'd be a great way to start. Cool. Okay. Um, so I've spent probably over two decades, or not probably, definitely over two decades now working in uh, elite and high-performance sport, both in the UK and around the world. Spent 16 years in the UK working with the English Institute of Sport and UK Sport and supporting Team GB at the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Um, and more recently, in, since t- 2019, I set my own business up, of which saw is, is this, and, or one of them, and, and, and it's... And the reason for setting all of this up for me was um, came from a point of frustration, I suppose. And the the frustration was that um, it became really clear that what I was doing was not exclusive to to the elite world and so on. And, and actually, what I what I was finding when I texted my 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 family and friends that actually what I was giving them as kind of bits of advice was effective for those for those individuals as it was for everyone I was working with. So went out on a mission really just to try and make it easier to get access to the, the kind of content that we uh, sorry, the, the the experience and expertise I've developed over the last two decades to make it make it much more applicable to, to, to the to the real world for everybody. And um and that's across the, the, the three businesses that I that I, I work with, that, that's kind of the mantra for all is that we talk about availability and accessibility and availability is the, the, the opportunity to get really uh, credible and evidence-based and practically applied 
content and the the uh, accessible bit is that it's in a way which you understand it's, it's simple enough to be, be able to have, have have an impact and that's kind of been my my, my mantra for the last what three and a half years now that's what i've been been trying to do and what um i can't believe it took, it took me 17 years to get to that point to realize that's what i really wanted to do but i'm, I'm there now and, and probably enjoying it more doing this than 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 i ever done in, in any other part of my working life so yeah that's me on a on a six months good and you and sorry you mentioned working with team gb and the and the, at the paralympics and the olympics which were you involved in so i've been involved in six games uh olympic games um so beijing was working with lots of multi-sport athletes i wasn't actually out in beijing um, London, I was working with British Rowing. Um, I was over at uh, Dorney Lake in Eton. Mm-hmm. Rio, I was out in Rio and I was heading up the performance services out there. So I was, there was you had the Olympic Village and a lot of where the competition is. And then you had um, like a hub, which was at one of the British schools, which is just outside. So I was, I was there overseeing all of the, the services of strength conditioning, nutrition, physio, medicine. Uh, and that was basically a training hub and a, and a re, um, rest and recovery hub for, for the athletes. So I was based out there. There was about 30 staff there looking after that. And then I worked with the Chinese uh, Olympic Committee for, for Tokyo. But I've also been involved in two two winter games for um, oh, now? I can't remember. Uh, Vancouver and oh, what was before Vancouver. Whatever the other one was, I think it was Torino in in Italy. Yeah, some of those sports in the Winter Olympics are they are brave. Those half pipes and stuff that they're chucking themselves down on the ice—they're it. There's some brave people in there. Yeah, brave and slightly unhinged. I think sometimes as well. When when, when you put <laughs> your, uh, it's the ski jumpers, the ones that get me, where you just come off a edge and you're just accepting that you're jumping 150 meters 120 meters before you make a landing and he's like you're not sure you're going to make the landing but yeah that's crazy wow, wow. i always got i always get hooked on that and yet I've, it's there's it's not actually a winter sport that i participate in but i do get hooked on the games they're exciting very exciting wow so that's that's a lot a lot of games you've been involved in and josh do you want to give us um an introduction to yourself Absolutely. It's not as an illustrious as a CV uh, as Alex is, but it's in and out, it's in and around uh, strength and condition. So I've probably been in around strength and condition or performance coaching for the last seven years. Firstly, during my kind of undergraduate studies as a sports exercise scientist and working within junior academies for, for, for rugby. And then more so as a graduate moving abroad um, to Asia and one working full time in um, a national national rugby team. Um, kind of intern rolling for the kind of men's 15s and then picking up some paid work around the age group stuff and the women's rugby um, and all fantastic experiences personally and, and professionally and actually had that curiosity to to combine probably my work um, with the other demographics really and and work with privately with executives and just understand that um, the philosophy to, or, or, or the approach to coaching it wasn't really different, um, irrespective of, of the goal at the end, one being perhaps performing on a weekend and winning a match, and the other one being somebody in the boardroom wanting to be cognitively there or have a, a stable energy for to play with their kids after work. The, the, the approach wasn't too dissimilar. Um, and it kind of led me to have this curiosity to, to try and scale up my impact, I think. Um, I've always loved being able to teach, to teach or coach. My mother was a teacher, um, but I've always wanted to do on, on a larger scale as possible, impact as many people as possible. And I think I became a little bit disillusioned with the idea that all the specialism and, and solutions that one has is contained for people either of an elite sport nature or, or individuals with a high, um, a high disposable income who, who can afford to pay it on an hourly basis. So. I actually returned to the UK and was just trying to find some some additional work or some other routes to employment. And I actually met Alex and shared with me his idea around kind of in the agreement of being able to kind of democratize access, truly democratize access to to elite kind of support and trustworthy information. Um, and and that that is the mission for Saw, and that's kind of what I really believed in. Um, and from there, it's been just really understanding what that is and and how we can 
unpack that into into a service and, and importantly just give value give value to people and, and make it available to people mm-hmm. so it's, it's interesting you both mentioned in there so you, you you mentioned josh about specialism and alex mentioned about it being frustrating because um the information or uh, wasn't necessarily accessible to all when, when i think of strength and conditioning at an elite level i i, I imagine have not been an elite level um athlete myself but i imagine um lots of machines and you see like you see people when they're preparing to go off and run across the desert they're in heat chambers and they're wired up to oxygen masks and all i i imagine lots of lots of science behind it um so it's interesting that your your output with this is making strength and conditioning applicable to all available to all when um I wonder how many other people see it that way, the same way as I do. Yes, good point. And I think one one of the other businesses we we run is basically is, is all about trying to make strength conditioning much more accessible. And and where we where we start with that, and which is why this has becomes really important, and why Saw probably does what it what it does, um, is this idea of truly understanding what you're trying to change and we call it basically our problem solving framework it's like what are you trying to change and then what do you have available to make those changes so you are you are right when you're in the elite environment you have opportunities which may not exist to everybody else but even in those in in in, in those environments that um you've still got constraints about you and the way in which you problem solve and try to determine what you're trying to change that that way of thinking doesn't alter now, if you just bring that back down to anyone else's environment and their context, the, the same the, the same question still needs to be asked of like, what are you trying to change? And followed up by, well, how do we make that change? And that's where kind of the premise of, of saw kind of still anchors against. It's, it's all about recognising that people always want to move from point A to point B. And it's recognising what point B is and what difference point B will make to that individual. And then it's then, well, okay, if we know what, what we can, what we, where we need to get to and the difference it will make, well, then we can work out how we can effectively achieve that. And then we then move on to, well, how will we know we, if we've achieved that, which is where, and I know we'll probably get into that in a little bit around some of the, the risk assessments and so on and, and why they become so important. Um, because when I talk about the frustration bit and the frustration actually came from, Again, friends and family talking about bits. I asked a question, and you've heard us on the chat hours talk about where you go to get your credible information. Well, the internet is huge. Like genuinely, like when you type in certain things, it is, is almost impossible to um, put a credibility marker on what information is is out there. And the second bit is, I, I get a sense that there's quite a lot of generic stuff out there about well if you do this this will help but it's basically three times ten of this and it's like well three times ten of this might be useful for the first session that you do maybe the second or third but if you're three years experience in that three times ten is not going to be doing or that same exercise is not going to be having doing the same thing as what it was three years earlier and that's a bit around the frustration bit is like how do you get people um engaged in this and actually um apply it to their circumstance and allow it to be kind of personalized to what they what they need it to be around what they're trying to change and that's kind of um where, where i kind of feel there is no difference between the elite level and the non-elite level it's they're still answering the same questions they've just got slightly different different constraints placed upon them okay so let, let's let's strip this back and define what strength and conditioning is because if i if i think about strength training and uh, uh, the, I'm, I'm a fan of like martial arts and cage fighting and boxing and things like that and you, you often hear the word conditioning used in well I hear it when the commentators they talk about an athlete being well conditioned and I, I I've associated with you know their shins are well conditioned they're getting kicked and that kind of thing so what's what is strength and conditioning as opposed to you know just strength training what Define yeah. that for us. So it, it, it's a really good question, and actually, I, I think we've we've 
and get me on a philosophical approach here. So I'll get that bit out of the way for like, strength conditioning, I think probably is not a true representation of what we really do. Physical preparation is probably a, a better description. And that physical preparation is being able to um, physically prepare individuals for the demands and the rigors of whatever task they're doing. So as you say, if it's running through a, the desert for the um, 250 miles or it's simply doing your park run for 5k. Like it really, really doesn't, doesn't matter. But from a, <coughs> excuse me, from a strength conditioning point of view, strength basically is the ability um, to, for a muscle or a group of muscles to produce a force and a different different um, types of force. So how hard, also how much. So um, kind of not just the biggest amount of strength you've got. How quickly. Um, so the speed at which that force is applied. And timing, which is basically, is it applied at the, the right time? So when you imagine the foot uh, hitting the floor while you're running, there's there's a there's three bits. There's how much this force needs to be. Does the, the body need to um, generate to hit the floor? Uh, how quickly does it need to to be able to absorb the, the forces that are being applied back to it through through the floor? And at what time? And, and the timing. So if any of those are slightly out, so if you don't, if it's not quick enough or at the wrong time. Then you'll get forces going through the body which which hurt you, which is why um, strength becomes really important because you need to be able to uh, remove that risk. Conditioning then can be broken down into two areas, which is one is really your fitness, which is um, can you sustain and repeatedly sustain what you're doing. So again, for running, like the the ability to um, have how many ground contacts during a 5k or a marathon, whatever it is, that, that there is a degree of conditioning required. And we, you know, on the, on the chats that we've had, on the chat hours, um, we've spoken about plyometrics. And actually, one of the things I've pro- probably said at least once is the energy cost to run a marathon, um, about 25% of that energy cost comes from the, the tendons and the uh, ligaments of your foot structure, the tendons of the, of the Achilles and the patella tendon. So the repeatability or the conditioning bit is, are your tendons and your foot structures able to be able to repeatedly sustain um, the ability to generate um, energy for you to run? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other the other bit is, is just generally your heart lungs, which is, can, are you fit enough? Have you can you can you bring in enough oxygen to reoxygenate your blood? Can you pump enough blood to your working muscles? to be able to allow them to be um, oxygenated and fueled to be able to do what they what they do and then making sure that you have enough energy through your stored carbohydrates um, uh, in, in the muscle and the liver and, and the kind of the, the carbohydrate you, you, you consume. Um, but we, yeah. really kind of when we look at conditioning, we kind of talk about the ability to continually sustain uh, loading on a, on a body, body tissue. So when you talk about mixed martial arts, and the shins are yeah. well conditioned. But the shin is well conditioned to continually take a beating or give a beating, I suppose, for mm-hmm. for for um, um as it is in running, as it is in running. Yeah. Is that exactly the same? And that's yeah. why it becomes really important. Why if you've got a really high strength level but you've got a really poor conditioning level, there is and my own research and the research out there would suggest that um you are unlikely to be able to do what you require because your conditioning just isn't high enough to be able to put enough training in in the first place to even get better um and that's going to be the limiting factor just because you can't actually put enough load through, the, through, through that part of the body to to, mm-hmm. to run yeah it, anything to add josh uh, no, no i would i would stress that and I, I do believe this too. I think strength, strength conditioning is just a, is, is a label, and it's probably evolved from there. It's probably a bit more holistic and sophisticated than it than that suggests. And as Alex said, it's kind of physical prep, or could even be athletic development. But ultimately, it's about understanding the physical demands of the task that you're you're undergoing. And, and with that understanding, be it through a needs analysis of the of the sport or task, or actually in conjunction with your own testing, evaluating what qualities do I need physically. And then testing and comparing myself against stand, standardized scores in those qualities will allow us to understand almost those physical gaps within your ability to sustain or to perform in that task. So importantly, it's about understanding the demands of the sport and then prescribing intelligently around those areas you must improve within those demands. 
you, you both mentioned testing, and I'll come back to that in a minute because as, as a running hobbyist, it isn't something that, that, that I think about. So it's really interesting. We'll dig into that in, in a little bit. Um, I, I love that physical preparation. So that is what strength and conditioning is. So essentially running is strength in motion. Is that right? Theoretically, yeah, absolutely. Like if if um, running uh, does two things, it it has the opportunity to change uh, the um, the respiratory and cardiovascular system, and it excuse me, and it also has the opportunity to change the physical structure of your muscles and tendons. So you know what it's like when you do hill runs or if or running down a hill. Um, or you do some higher tempo based work like it, it all of that has a has an op- opportunity to do that so you can actually manipulate running to change um certain aspects of the physical not just the, sorry the physical it's all physical the the kind of the, the muscle tendon side of it or not just the heart and lung side of it mm-hmm. the, the, there's a common theme um you see it on twitter a lot about zone two running and that, and what you're describing there in terms of fitness and bones and tendons and adapting over time is the that that just solidifies that these long and slow runs, um, the repetition is is very important, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so having worked in with endurance runners um, and so a long time with rowing um, as well, zone two is is the the staple, I suppose, of their their physical diet, um, and th- there's many reasons why they they might might be might be doing that. But and this has come from a rowing coach, not a running uh, sorry, a rowing not a running coach. But fundamentally, what he he, he describes is that the um, the base level of fitness has to be developed, to, which comes back to that conditioning part. Like you just have to be able to sustain the rigors of, of training and competition and actually the reality is in a week training is more likely to be a higher train a higher physical demand than the, the competition itself so you just have to be able to sustain the training so that training can actually be positive for you um but then he also talks about this idea that you have to be uh, resilient and to be resilient you need to be able to um have many many rowing strokes or ground contacts while running to be able to you're able to develop the tolerance to be able to, to do that. So you do get this kind of fitness base, but you do get the, the, the condition base or the kind of the muscle tendon base just by doing large volumes of that. And I know some people are starting to contest whether or not there is a need to do all of that. Um, but it's they're, they're, for me, you still do, but you can still manipulate the training around it to, to get some of the other bits that you may not get elsewhere. Very interesting. Something, something for a future podcast, I think, <laughs> to really dig into, because it's so it's so regular that you see it, that you see it spoken about, and then as you, some people follow it with yeah, but I get bored. <laughs> yeah, well, imagine, again, as I said, I've worked a lot with rowing. Imagine being on a rowing machine and you're having to do twenty kilometers on a rowing machine, and all you've got is over the wall in front of you. Or the person's back of the rowing machine in front of you, and that's all yeah. you see for for that. <laughs> that is boring um, compared to running. At least you can you can potentially be out and about in some interesting places. Yes. So I I don't know the, the percentage, but there's a lot of runners get injured, and a lot of runners get injured every year. Um, how do, you know you work across different sports, both of you? So how, how does this compare to other sports that you work in? Um, you know, is it high? Uh, it's all high, if, if, if I'm honest. So, like, the, you'll, you'll see on, on our website, we, we talk about about fifty percent of runners will get injured each year. So it's literally a flip of a coin. Um, every runner out there, whether or not um, you you come back healthy or or not, uh, which seems really really quite um really quite uh, demoralizing in that sense but when again when you're looking at um um again some of the other endurance sports and i'll take rowing, rowing again again rowers will um over 50 percent of them will have a low low back pain within within a year as well so become injured so it's fairly comparable to kind of more of the endurance based um sports that, that are out there um 
and interestingly, one of the big things for all of this is um, there's two significant factors, and there are many, but there's two significant factors which contribute to that risk. One is previous injury. You're more likely yep. to be injured if you've had a previous injury in that site. And I'll get onto that in a, sec- that in a little bit more in a second. The second bit is rapid changes in training loads. So if you suddenly, uh, you're, you know, you're a regular park runner running two, three times a week between three and 5K a week, and you're like, you know what, I'm going to go and do a marathon, and you suddenly go from 5K to 20K in your first first week, well, that sudden spike is, is known to be a significant risk within within um, with injury. Um, and then when we're, we're um, so that, that, that definitely can be, can be uh, managed. The previous risk of injury, and, th- and this, I'm going to sell them out and I'm sure my, I'm not sure if my, my brother-in-law and my sister will, would listen to this or not, but they're both, both doctors um, and they've both injured things, lower limb injuries um, for, through running. Um, and the reason why I say previous risk of injury is a, a significant factor to predicting future risk is because of this behavior. I, I hurt my calf muscle. Uh, what did you do? I rested for 10 days and I went back out again. So what you basically said is like, I've damaged my, my, my calf muscle. So you've changed the structure of the, the, the calf. That calf is no longer possibly able to tolerate the loading that it was able to do before you got injured. And recovering hasn't changed that structure any further. You've just allowed the inflammation and the pain to go away. And then you're going to run on a calf muscle, which is no longer able to tolerate what it could have done two weeks earlier. And you, and then you wonder why you get injured again. So fundamentally, resting recovery is not enough to um, overcome overcome injury. It stops the pain and the discomfort and the, the inflammation around it. But that's kind of the... Um, the mindset of of a lot of people which is just to stop it's not just about stopping it's about okay you need to recondition that muscle and that tendon to be able to tolerate what it was able to tolerate before but probably even higher than what it was previously um and the bit about that and sorry i'm going on here but the other bit it's also when i say preventable you can definitely control that to a degree just by simple exercise so that's to, to give you a, a protective effect mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the change in intensity particularly interests me because it all boils down to in its most fundamental form is, is stress. It's like training yields stress. Stress isn't a bad thing. Stress can be a good thing. I think the body the body itself has no, there's, there's no buckets of stress. You can't put you can't put financial stress when it comes in into the financial bucket, physical stress. It all just manifests into one place. But our ability to tolerate stress is finite. So we have a certain amount we can tolerate and if we overdo that without sufficient recovery, something is going to happen. Something, something could be catastrophic. It could manifest itself in the mental health. It was down there, but from a training perspective, it could become overuse injury. So importantly, I look at it about, you have to understand your own physical, physical capabilities to start with. And then you, you should train within those. And Alex will probably allude to, well, I'll mention and Alex can kind of open up a bit more is this thing called habitual capability, which is, understanding how much you can do but not testing those boundaries too much and actually working in kind of a minimal effective dose environment so doing just enough to yield adaptation but also it being a recoverable intensity as well and if i look at it i think about if we work to our physical ability we work to a ceiling once we get to that ceiling i don't want to knock out chunks of it i want to just chisel bits away because if i begin to knock out chunks of it it's going to challenge my ability to one recover from those demands but to repeat that training as we go. We're always trying to train for tomorrow. We're not, we're not about trying to create as much stress and, and damage today that we can't pick up and, and operate tomorrow. Because ultimately, most of the things we're doing within physical prep and SNC are actually just enabling us to do the thing we love again and again and again. We're, as runners, we're not here to be to perfect our squat, bench and deadlift. And it's funny when we mention the Olympic lifting conversation, it's like, fundamentally always ask well, what are we doing this for is this going to improve my sport my hobby my domain and if the answer is yes then we can probably begin to utilize it but if we can't quite justify actually why we're doing this there's probably a better alternative instead so it's all about understanding exactly what it is and why we want to do it and then managing the amount of load we we we, we utilize within that within that environment 
and it brings you back to that kind of previous injury. Um, all injuries are preventable. Most injuries are preventable, right? There's, there's always most tissue is 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 trainable and, and can adapt. And if we understand what those demands are of that tissue, i.e. the the foot and ankle, for example, how much force goes through the floor on a repeated basis, and we can understand how much that is, and we can begin to train you up to a level which can tolerate that over an extended period of time. And I think the difference between sports is that it's just a different different precursor of injury. So if we look at like a, an endurance sport, it's more often than not it's overuse. It's repeat. It's doing repetitive tasks in the same movements. And if there's an ill ability to tolerate those tasks physically, something's going to manifest an injury. If we compare that to the likes of the sport you're interested in, MMA or, or martial arts or more combat sports, or even the sports I work within within rugby, they're a bit more chaotic in nature. So although they are preventative and preventable, it's about us understanding what those common and vulnerable injury sites are on that in, within that sport. So for example, if it's rugby and I know I have my arm extended out in a long lever position here to make a tackle. I'm probably going to be challenging the rotator cuff during contact, mm-hmm. particularly if there's really sudden change of direction. I might not always get technique right every time. So with that information, I now need to, I now know I can take a preventative approach to improving the shoulder external internal rotation, for example, to build my resilience for the sport itself. So I'm, I'm sure. Sorry, go on. Sorry. Go on, go on, Alex. That's right. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, just bring that back to, to running. Like 80% of all running-related injuries are overuse. 80% of those overuse injuries happen at the knee or below. So you can quite quickly see how um, you can start building a picture of like, well, we can we can't we can't train to traumatic injuries like being you know, falling off a, a a curb or. You know, whatever it might be but you know for the overuse you definitely can do that and then we definitely know the manifestation of injuries is knee and below um but our our bit is that you know well we know where the injury sites are but we also know the injury site isn't necessarily the reason why that injury occurred it could be somewhere else which is where the risk assessment kind of gives us a little bit more insight around that mm-hmm. so, so let, let's move on to that you mentioned the risk assessment there so tell us about sore and, and what, what it is that you want to achieve then yeah, okay. Um, so saw it, it, it doesn't just work with, with running at the moment, but it, running is our first our first endeavour. And saw was entirely set up to make um, make credible available credible um, content available to, to, to the mass populations of runners um, for this for, for ready to run. And, and the idea was that we want to be able to allow people to continue to do the things that they love doing the most which for runners tends to be running um and actually the thing that stops people from running is often the the injury that's um that that's um that has occurred and our bit was well actually if we can give you something a bit more um around prehabilitation so like just a small dosages of exercise which can can um prevent or reduce the risk of those overuse injuries then, then that's a really good thing because it doesn't take out any any significant more amount of time of your week to be able to do these exercises. You know, at, at its peak, you're talking three lots of just under thirty minutes of, of work throughout the week, and it can be done any. And the, the other bit is making sure that it can be done anywhere and any time. So you don't need an expensive equipment. You don't need to go to a gym. You can do it at your home. You can self self administer it. Um, and the idea is that it just makes it much more um accessible because you because you don't need to have to do all these other things like in terms of buy lots of equipment and or, or go to a gym or buy a personal trainer to, to to do that and the idea is that when we, we said it before about that democratization like we we tom who's the other co-founder you know over three decades of experience of kind of really refining down all the things that we know that work and removing the things that we think just doesn't really matter right now and get it to a point where you don't have to do that research or that that bit. We've done it because we've done it with thousands of athletes and individuals, and we can say that these are the things that become become really important. So if you do these, we know that it makes makes a big difference. And alongside that, and one of the questions we often get back is, well, you've worked with elite athletes, so it's like you know they've got all the time in the world and this that, and the other. So we say well, yeah, that's right, but we base it on the Pareto principle, which is you get eighty percent of your 
physical change by doing 20% of the work. So we never get, we get you to this level and you don't need to be coming up here like that. We know that's enough and enough being that you, if you, if you've got the standards that we say that, that we think are important, you should reduce that risk of running related overuse injuries because you, we know that, that that body part is can tolerate, tolerate running. And that for elite athletes, they have to spend the extra 20 hours a week to push those that final 20%. And nobody, you know, unless you are an elite athlete who, who's listened to this, then you don't really need to be pushing that because it's not going to change anything um, for you significantly. It's just going to take time away and you might um, get a little bit better and not, not significantly better. Um, and one of the big things that we've, we've always come back to is that for this to be genuinely impactful for people, it can't be just here's a here's a twelve week program which is generic and just it kind of just progresses mm-hmm. you on week on week out and it doesn't really take into account what we said what are you trying to change and how are you going to do that which is where the risk assessment comes in so based upon what we know of running and what we know are the high risk factors the assessments in there are four physical assessments one looking at hamstring um, um, kind of capacity or conditioning. One is looking at uh, calf uh, conditioning and the other two are looking at hamstring and quadricep mobility. Now, there are a few others, but one of the things we know that if you're good at one, you tend to be good at all. If you're bad at one, you tend to be bad at all. And if you're average at one, you tend to be average at all of them. So there's this kind of the research that we've done on this um, is showing that generally for about 90% of the people, these four assessments will give you a, a, a comparable assessment of what your risk is to, to running on, on the, all the four sites. So we look at ankle, foot, hip, trunk, um, and knee. And we can basically say, we think you might have a slightly higher risk of knee-related injuries based upon your scoring or slightly higher or lower risk around your trunk based upon these these areas here. So that we can we can then say, okay, these are your risks. Um, and then you can then get a training program which then purposefully targets your weaknesses. So it's not like a just just, just generic thing. It's like, okay, you, we've worked out what, you, what you're weak at. We're going to change that. And we also know that after 12 weeks, we can probably make between 100 and 150% improvement on your your uh, fitness. Um, that, is, that, is that right, Josh? It was about 100 to 150%, or was it a little bit? I think so, yeah. 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 So okay. I think even after eight weeks, it was about eighty or ninety percent improvements of of change in those those areas. So how how have you got those numbers? Where how have you tested that? So we pre tested this last year um, with a number of in, individuals and so non non elite athlete populations, um, and they came in and did did the test testing did the did a twelve week training program. Um, and then they tested um, um, throughout, and we were basically, I think they tested at uh, week zero, four, eight, and 12, and we, we tracked their progress. And you see you see their change in their their uh, risk assessment scores as they improve, and therefore, as their scores improve, their risk risk de- decreases. Now, when we look at that from the, sorry, go on, I was about to say something there. Yeah, it, it, this, see, this is the bit that, Testing and risk assessments, not risk assessments. What 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 are we doing here? Are we, uh, <laughs> like, I'm I'm you know I'm, I'm like to go out for a run. I enjoy going out for a run. I like doing park run, and I'm signing up for a half marathon. Why am I doing a risk assessment? Is it? <laughs> it's um, you know that's something that happens at work in the HR department. But that that's and and you both mentioned testing, and this is a real mindset shift, isn't it? For for someone to actually. Because you, you just go out and run, or you just go out and you go to the gym, and you try and get a little bit. But you, you know, this is a real put putting your stake in the ground as to where you're at, where you begin, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, and testing's no different, not different from running, though, is it? Like, you know, the running at um, there's so much stuff you can get on the internet about how you can get your um, your 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 running pace for your zone two running, and you know all the endurance sports find ways to test the fitness, almost the fitness side of it all and be able to say my heart rate needs to be at this level for this type of intensity of work or it needs to be at this yeah. level so testing is, always exists what we're doing is just extending it to say well it also exists 
for the other parts of training, which we we should we should all also consider as well. Yeah, yeah. I think like if if a runner, or, and I like any sports person would was to was to work with a coach or try and try and pursue their performance, they would be that there will be prescriptions involved in in the sporting element of their training, particularly from runners. It's running at X X zone or X time spent at, at this heart rate or percentage of the heart rate max. So there's always been an environment whereby there's prescriptive nature to their to them pursuing their sports. And I think it's no different. The philosophy is no different in terms of then physical preparation of those sports. What testing does is it allows us to collect data. And with that data, we could hopefully be empowered to make more accurate decisions or start better conversations with that data. And really all it allows us to do is be very deliberate and accurate with the prescription of training. Like it's it's one thing turning up and, and, and ticking a box. And it's another thing actually being very deliberate and concise with with that time you spend because everyone is t- everyone is time poor um it's about how can we package something up which is minimal in terms of its time commitment but actually maximal in terms of its effect effectiveness of getting you where you want to be so so take take me through that testing then josh so uh, alex went through the the various things there so i'm i'm listening to this podcast now and i and i want to go and do this risk assessment on 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 where I am. Take take me through the process. What do I do? So there's four tests, um, and they can all be self-administered. So we've kind of produced how-to follow-along videos, and you'll be able to find them on our on our website saw.today. But those four tests, as Alex mentioned, what there's two around kind of capacity. One being for the the lower leg injuries, and that's for the as a calf raise. And the other one being around the hip, and that is um, kind of a hip bridge. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, with the follow-along videos, you'll be able to, one, discover the standards of the test. So the test is only as good as the kind of standards and the rule set we, we, we put against it. And hopefully this is removing this kind of margin for error around um, discrepancies or anomalies in results. So providing someone follows the instructions, say, right, this is actually, this is a standardized repetition. If you can then begin to recreate those repetitions, then they count towards your test scores. Here's also three or four errors which we might perceive to be expected within this test. So uh, in, invariably, as fatigue sets in, we still want to try and achieve, as humans innately, we still want to win. We still want to try and achieve the best results. But ultimately, we might be sacrificing technique to do that. And in terms of a fair indication of how you are, we need to be quite deliberate and quite disciplined around how we execute those tests. So there'll be instructions on how to accurately complete the test and what those repetitions or what those positions from a flexibility standpoint look like there'll also be some rules around administering the test for example this is how long each repetition should be or this is how long you should hold this position in flexibility for and there'll also be some common errors to look out for which with some kind of self-discipline and awareness you'll be able to spot and say well actually of the repetitions or of the positions that fell into those error brackets they wouldn't count towards my results once then you kind of collect those results, there's a form underneath that. So you'd simply input your details, input kind of where you are in terms of the participation pyramid of running. Are you occasional runner? Are you a regular runner? Are you an elite or experienced runner? But importantly, then put your results as well. And what those results will enable us to do is cross-reference your data set with the one that pre-exists for us. And with that, we can understand one, where you sit internally and how you sit against our own internal standards of each test but also how you fare against people within our within our data set as well and perhaps with people how you fare against people within your own participation area so how do you versus the rest of the occasional runners sit and where what are they doing or what are the gaps that you have compared to them so i i did the car phrases before we started the recording oh <laughs> I was, I was amazed that, well, shocked rather than amazed that I that I can do almost a hundred percent more on my right side than I can on my left side with calf raises. My left calf is so much weaker, and I had no idea until I went and did that. There, in lies a really, um, well, we don't literally talk about left-right differences so much, um, but it does highlight a really important. Um, factor there is that one side of your body is more tolerable to running than the other side and when I spoke about my brother and my brother-in-law and sister when they like I, I just stopped running and um when I got injured my sister was a calf 
Um, and I did exactly the same thing. Um, and she could do, I think, half a repetition on one leg and maybe five or six on the other leg. And I was like, well, maybe that's where we should start getting you back to back to fitness. Yeah. It just gives you, it gives you a point of knowing how much uh, load you need. And Josh spoke about this thing about habitual capability earlier. And the habitual capability is just what your body can tolerate at any given point. So if your t- habitual capability is here, which is your basically your test score, you start you just below that. And so that because if you start just below that, you can get more volume at something which is not maximal than if you're at your at your at your your max. So we can just build that volume up and that habitual capability when you retest and retest and retest gets you up to this point here. And that's that's the beauty of this. Like it does generally put your mark in the sand of like, okay, this is where I'm at. And you know where you need to get to, and a program will be can be written for you, which moves you closer to that um, that new standard. Mm-hmm. It was a very simple thing to do as well. Like I, if I if I go to the gym, I use the calf raise machine or the donkey calf, that kind of thing. But you're always using two legs, and I don't, you know, naively don't don't do single legs. But it was just like, wow, that's a significant difference. Like, how did you get to? It's obviously your experience over the years, but these tests are, are simple. How did you get to that level of simplicity with it? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. The, the, what we, when I spoke about the working in the elite environment, we still had constraints against us, which were often we end up in hotels with no training facilities, and, and you'd have to work out ways to, to 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 train. And so ultimately, my mindset's always been geared to how how you can make things as simple as possible. But then when we were starting to try and scale this to um, you know, thousands of athletes across 40 or 50 different sports, as soon as you start bringing in equipment, you're then starting to say that every single center needs these bits of equipment. And that becomes really, really challenging. And so we, so that became like a, a kind of a, a cost constraint, which we were like, well, we can't do that. And then when we did do some testing between like a calf raise, it, it wasn't necessarily on a calf raise machine, but for this example, like if, if it was doing a calf raise on a on a machine or body weight calf raise, what we found was there was literally no difference in the test data. Like the the test data of doing body weight or or kind of the test that we've done in the user risk assessment versus using machine, it told us exactly the same story. Like so, the the, the, the scores might be slightly different, but when we did the the statistical analysis on it, you know, if you got fifteen reps on a single leg calf raise and you um, got I don't know, 17 reps on a machine car frames and when you looked at all the data it told you exactly the same story you, you were either good enough or you weren't good enough there's a difference to your left and your right so it was like well why bother doing something which you can get exactly the same story or narrative around what the what the uh, what the testing's there to do in the first place um, so we went down that route and then spent years genuinely years probably eight or nine years validating these as genuine measures of um what it's supposed to be measuring so if we're doing a calf raise funny enough it does actually measure calf raise or your calf capacity or your calf condition and the um the reliability that if you were to do it again tomorrow would you would you get um a similar test test result uh, well, not so much. You might be a little bit sore after doing uh, max max today, but in 48 hours, would you be able to do the same? So the validity and reliability became really important for us, and we found that by giving really detailed instructions on how to complete that, and you'll see from the from the the risk the, the tests on there that it tells you how to set up, make sure you've got your shoes on. Just removing all of that, it means that you removed the error that's normally associated with this. So we got it down to a really good small level of error. So and that error was roughly about one and a half to two repetitions. So like if you get a change in two repetitions or more, you can say that's a genuinely meaningful difference to what you were when you last tested that, which is really good because it, then we can then say there is a significant change in your in your your uh, performance. And then we've, we've done that across the trunk. We've done it around the hip, the hamstring, the knee and the, the ankle. So we've managed to do all of these. And, and basically we've got a highly, a highly valid measure of a body area highly reliable in that you can repeatedly do it and get a consistent score a consistent um score back and we also know which i think is the most important bit what standards are so we've now worked out what good looks like 
and everything below that. Um, and I think that's that's where we've got to um, through this. Um, and the simplicity just makes it even easier for us to then deliver it in the way we're delivering it right now. Very yeah, good. I think I, I want so to touch you... on like it. Sorry, Joe. I just think it that that natural evolution of how 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 you got to to where you are with testing, given just improvising against the constraints you had, actually is a really nice is a really nice integration to the values we anchor ourselves in anyway. In terms of building something which is truly accessible and truly available to people, and and in that becomes simplicity. And it's interesting working with Alex for the last year and shaping a philosophy as an as an SNC coach or as a physical preparation coach. You you leave you leave education and you you need to have a program with all the bells and whistles and fits with the current trend or fits with the current the current research. But ultimately, the best program is the one you can adhere to. And and, and first and foremost, it needs to be adherence for for an athlete to create meaningful sustainable change um, and typically adherence comes around understanding what is on somebody's plates what are the demands they have and how can we build something which integrates complementary to those demands and typically upon that comes simplicity of training how can we get it done as easily as possible and as quickly in a time efficient manner as possible and that will begin to build that likelihood of success of them coming back tomorrow and doing it again <laughs> So, so what happens after I've completed those risk, that risk assessment? You get a individualised risk assessment report emailed to you, um, which out identifies where your what your total risk score is. So, are you at high risk of injury or moderate to to, to, to low risk? Um, and then it will identify the key four areas of which where your risk mostly mostly lies uh, and then off the back end of that the you have the option then to uh, purchase a training program and the training program will basically be written exclusively to your test results um, and it will target those those areas based upon that um, and that's that's um, that's it really so unlike buying us a training program off, off the shelf which is generically 12 weeks of doing the same stuff this will systematically uh, and progressively develop your what we talk about that habitual capability. So you you get up there, and then you can retest yourself at the end of the twelve weeks and see the difference that you've made. Very good. Do you, while I've got you on, gents, would you uh, give me so another another word that I hear a lot is mobility. Just explain that for us in your in, in your words, please. Yeah, so mobility really is around the, the freedom of movement is probably the, the easiest way to describe it. Um, now, stretching is a part of mobility. So stretching is trying to change the length of the muscle. Um, and the length of the muscle is um, part of this freedom of movement. So mobility refers to really around the joints and um, the, the kind of the tissues, the muscles, the tendons, the, the uh, ligaments around that. So when we talk about improving mobility, it's about improving the freedom of movement around a particular joint. So often we twist your ankle while running. The first thing that does is the degrees of movement that you have within your ankle start to stiffen right up. And that is a natural response for the body to try and protect itself. Um, but once all the pain and the discomfort has gone, you actually need to then re reverse that, that stiffening and actually get the ankle back into a much more um much more mobile position um and which is why when you see some of the the exercises that we prescribe are some of it stretching which is the traditional you know hold for however long um which is probably the most boring and painful bit of the the program whereas some of the stuff we talk about soft tissue work which is using like a tennis ball to dig into the sole of your foot or into your calf muscle and that's now changing like trigger point stuff so, around that. And then there's other bits where it's like a dynamic warm-up uh, bit where you might just be trying to take the hip or the ankle through a range of movement um, beyond what you would normally experience while running and wh why mobility becomes really important. Um, so if you imagine that your, um, your ankle is supposed to be mob more mobile 
and have lots of movement. Knee is supposed to be quite stable. The hip is supposed to be mobile. Lumbar spine is supposed to be quite stable. Thoracic spine is supposed to be quite mobile. When you change the mobility of a joint, the joint above and below it will then start compensating for what it's just lost. So if the knee is supposed to be really, um, really stable, but um, it becomes really mobile, the hip and the ankle will try and create more stability to overcome what the knee has just lost. Same with the ankle, the ankle becomes more mobile, so more more stiff and loses mobility. When the knee is going to try and overcompensate for that, and a lot of that, when you see when running, is the ankle it needs good range of movement to kind of be part of that force kind of absorption so that you're not always kind of like hitting this really hard hitting. If the ankle can't do that, well, what has to happen, the knee and the hip have to take that. So the knee then probably flexes more. What does that do? Puts more load on the on the, on the patella tendon. What does that then do? Well, that puts more load onto the hamstring and the, the hip. And what does that do? Then it starts creating, you can see this cascade of events and suddenly what started off as an ankle stiffness or an ankle range of movement problem ends up with a, a lumbar spine pain um because the, the ankle's lost what it's supposed to be doing so that's why mobility what mobility is and why it's so blooming important because if you lose it something else has to um compensate for it yeah yeah i think i think on that importantly mobility for me is it has to, it's trainable uh, and to that it must as we were talking about taking prescript a prescriptive approach to strength and condition the same we can do for mobility right we can prescribe time to stretches perhaps or we could we could prescribe certain reps to more of the active mobility work. So when I think about mobility, I think about it from a from like a tissue standpoint. And when I say tissue, I just mean the stuff, the flesh, muscle, tendon, ligament, that kind of stuff. And flexibility, I would say, is, is how far tissues can extend. So from a passive standpoint, if I can put myself into a stretch, how far can that range of, like how far can that joint's range of motion extend those, those tissues? But at the same time, if we were to increase that range of motion, if my tissues could extend more, then I should be able to begin to tolerate force in that newfound range of motion. So if I've increased that range of motion, invariably, if we think about it by we begin to put force through that new range of motion, I must be able to tolerate that force. And if I can't, that force can dissipate up above and below, as Alex is alluding to. So a good example for me is if I was to stand up and, and grab my knee and pull it towards my chest, that would be how far my glutes and the tissue behind the back of my, my hip can extend. Once I let go of that knee and I begin to hold it in free, free motion and gravity is beginning to pull on it, it's a, different, it's a different ballpark. Invariably, what you'll see is the knee will be really high, really tight to your chest when you're pulling up an extension. You'll let go and there'll be a drop. And you'll probably get a bit of a, a sensation, a feeling of waking up or work being done on your hip flexor. So... Both are forms of mobility. One is a passive range of hip flexion, how far off my, my glutes and that, 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 that posterior tissue of the hip can extend to get me up into that deep flex position. The other one is active mobility. How much can my hip flexor contract to hold that deep hip flex position? What we want to try and do then is decrease that range of motion, that deficit between the two. So if I have a greater passive mobility than I do active, I've got a margin of error. I've got a, I've got a deficit whereby injury could occur. If I can close that gap and train my active mobility to reach the same as my passive, then I'm in every range of motion I, I, I expel within that, within that joint is able to tolerate force because I've taught myself how to contract in it. Gents, we've, we've been chatting for an hour already and I know that we're going to do lots more of this and I've got loads more strength and conditioning questions that the community have brought up and um i've got plenty for myself as well um just before before we finish up where where do where do the community connect with you give us all of your socials tell us again where that risk assessment is give us all that good stuff so we're on our socials are train with saw at train with saw on instagram and on twitter we're as active as we can be and we want to be more active and want to engage with the community and importantly we want to try and produce some real valuable and informative content for that so if your community and the like have got any suggestions on what they want to see from us from a, a post perspective then, then please let us know um, so at train with saw on twitter and instagram and then for the sake of the risk assessment and the the program which runs in conjunction with that you can reach both on saw.today, which is our website online, and 
you'll see a picture uh sorry you'll see a button um on our landing page which has kind of either free risk assessment or you can jump straight to the program irrespective of both um there'll still be an assessment process in place anyway so you'll still have a chance to do your test brilliant well thank you very much both it's um it's been a, a great start this month. Like you said, when people are asking questions on um, Twitter related to strength and conditioning, we are tagging you into those now. And there's lots of chat about this going on. And um, I think this education and people having the opportunity to test and find out where they are is is exciting. And like you say, if we can keep people doing what they love for longer, then that can only be a good thing, can't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much, both. We'll um, we will we will see you on your next chat hour, your next your next podcast, and um, we'll also be doing the draw on that brilliant competition we've got going at the moment as well this week. So anyone who yeah, hasn't taken you, part yet, make sure yeah. you make sure you enter. Uh, there's a Coros Pace two up for grabs from the from these lovely gents and. Um, we look forward to seeing you all on the next episode. Thank you both. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Joe.